This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. Once you are saved, does God expect anything from you? Once you're saved, does God expect you to exert yourself in any given way? There are some who answer that by saying no. There are some who believe that if you look back at your salvation, that it was something that God affected entirely of his own volition, which is true. And because he did that entirely of his own volition, he will also clean you up entirely of his own volition. And that you simply need to do this. You need to let go and let God. I trust if you've been in church circles long enough, you've heard that phrase. There are some who believe that we need to let go and let God. That all the responsibility for anything good that happens to us after we're saved comes from the same volition of the one who has saved us. That if we're ever to be sanctified, if we're to be better tomorrow than we are today, it's because God just does it. We let go, let God, and in God's time, he'll finish the work that he started. Now, there's enough theological truth to all of that to get most of us to nod our head at that sort of thing. Because God is sovereign. He saves us of his own volition. Clearly, he's intent on sanctifying us, and he does complete that which he started. All that's good, all that's true, and all that's right. And yet, even as we look at our own salvation, we say, that was his work. He did it. He changed my heart from heart of stone to heart of flesh. It was his will, his volition, his grace by which that happened, not mine. Even as we believe that to be true, amen and amen, even as we believe that to be true, at the same level as that's a monergistic work of God's action, your sanctification The degree to which you are going to be cleansed of your iniquity is a function not only of God's will, but of ours as well. Salvation, justification, is a monergistic act by which God changes our hearts, remakes us, adopts us, justifies us. That's of God. Sanctification, however, is synergistic. It's something God does, and it's something that we are called to be committed to as well. And if you don't believe that, if you have a let go and let God mentality then I challenge you to reconcile, let go and let God, with Paul's words in today's text that call us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In Paul's words throughout his epistles, there is regularly an emphasis on our exertion, our efforts. Why do you think Paul at the end of his days said, I have fought the good fight, I have run the good race? Are those the phrases you apply to a man who sits back and let go and let God? Not in the least. That's a man who is committed committed to working out that which God had worked in. Those are the words of someone who is committed to being more holy in the time yet to come than he was in the day he started. Those are the words of someone who with fear and trembling says, by gum, I will be more holy and more righteous in the time yet to come. I'm going to commit myself to word and sacrament and prayer and the like. And I tell you, not everyone does so equally because not everyone takes this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling equally. What was Paul's intention when he wrote these words? What did he mean? Well, that's, again, what we're looking at. Let's return to verses 12 and 13 and work our way through and try to answer these questions. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. All right. 
During our study of Philippians over the past three weeks, we've seen that the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Philippian church in Macedonia in order to thank them for the grace and provision they've shown him. Remember, they sent Epaphroditus to bring him some financial support and to care for Paul. And so he writes to thank him. He says, I am so thankful. Every time I think of you, I'm thankful. And then he wrote them some additional words to call them to be strong and united and humble in all things. And then here he transitions to these words, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's writing, remember, to the church. He's writing to people he considers brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does he mean, work out your salvation? Is he telling them, you've got to work this out. You've got to figure out how to be saved. Is that what he means? Spoiler alert, no. Now the Philippians, again, they were living as a Roman colony in Macedonia. Now on some level, what they feared and trembled before was less God and more Rome. The people in Paul's age who lived under the boot of the Roman Empire, the thing that scared them the most was generally Rome. And Paul knew that that was true in Philippi as well. He knew that one of the biggest dangers that they perceived was Rome's influence. That if they were to minister too loudly, proclaim Christ too vociferously, that the boot of Rome would come down. And there was ample proof that this would happen because Paul himself was in jail under house arrest in Rome. So on a human level, it was understandable that the people in Philippi... The thing that they feared and trembled before was the Roman Empire. They were fearful about this. And because they were fearful, they felt a need to be quiet about what they believed. In Philippi, they could meet and they could talk and encourage one another, but always kind of keeping an eye out, lest trouble strike. Well, here's the thing. If they were fearing and trembling before Rome, then Paul is asserting that they were fearing and trembling before the wrong thing. See, when Paul had been with them, they had been brave and obedient Now, this may have been a function in part of his presence. And he suggests as much in the verses that follow. He knows that when he was there, he remembers, yeah, you all were on the spot. You were brave and you were obedient and the like. When a church, when a nation, when anybody has strong, good leadership, it's easier to follow in line. If you were a follower of Patton or William Wallace or someone, it was easier to do your job on the basis of the strong leadership. What about when the leader's gone? What about when the leader's gone? Well, in the Philippians' case, it would seem that Paul heard that the Philippians had taken their foot off the gas. He was no longer there with them, prompting them and encouraging them. They took their foot off the gas. And that's why he tells them in verse 12 that even in his absence, even in his absence, as much as when he was present, but even in his absence, that they were supposed to work out or work outward their salvation with fear and trembling. Now we touched upon these words a few minutes ago. When you hear that phrase, when you hear the phrase, work out your salvation, what sort of work is God calling you to? If that's something you're supposed to do, does that mean you're supposed to sit here and figure out how to be saved? Or is it something different? Something different. How do you answer that question? Well, here's something that might help you to understand verse 12. When Paul calls us to work out our salvation, notice that he doesn't say work for your salvation. If he were called to work for their salvation, this would suggest that we are supposed to add work upon work as building blocks that hopefully one day will get us over the lip, over the edge, into heaven on God's golden shores. If he had said, work for your salvation, that would suggest 
that you take the knowledge of Jesus Christ and say amen, and then you just try and try and try to be more Christ-like and do the things you're supposed to do and hope, hope that someday you'll have enough rungs on your ladder that you've constructed to heave yourself into heaven on the basis of what you do. If that had said work for your salvation, you could come to that conclusion very easily. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't say work out in terms of figuring out your salvation. It says work out as in work outward. Work outward your salvation. Now let me explain what this means. Let's say that in our midst, let's say that we had a world-class painter. A world-class painter in our midst. Now, do you think that we could recognize that giftedness, recognize that ability, if the world-class painter never painted If there was no manifestation of that which was within, if there was no manifestation, outward expression of the brush, of that talent that laid within, how would we know and recognize the giftedness or the nature of the painter himself? If Michelangelo had had all the talent that he clearly had for painting, I'm always in awe when I look at anyone who can paint. It's the same with music. I can't do music and I can't paint. I'm always in awe when people with these talents are able to do the things they do. If Michelangelo had had all the talent for painting, but he'd never painted, he never once took the brush to canvas, would that natural ability that he had, that God had sown into his being, would it ever be known or would it ever be recognized by him or anybody else? Well, no. How would it be? How would it be unless... Unless he was to work outward that which was within. How would he, Michelangelo, bless the culture and the community and the world around him, let alone glorify God, unless he took what was within and worked it, expressed it outwards? Work out your salvation doesn't mean figure it out. It means work outward that which is already in you. God has volitionally saved you and changed your heart. He has equipped you and gifted you with strengths and abilities. He has set you in a time and place in his kingdom. He has given you a calling. He's made you an ambassador. The question is, with all those advantages that you have, what are you doing with them? Are you working them outward? Or does nobody even know that they're there because you're not doing anything with them? Paul, when he heard that the Philippians were quieting down, that's the last thing he wanted them to do. He wanted them to take the hope, the gospel, the message, the giftedness, the evangelism, everything that they were called to and equipped to do as saints of God, to take that and share it in the community around them, to work out this salvation and to do it with a healthy fear, reverence, and awe and respect for the one who had granted them those gifts and abilities in the first place. This brings us to the concept of fear and trembling. Again, in these verses, we see these words. As you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does fear and trembling have to do with this equation? Assuming we understand a little bit to work out your salvation, to be sanctified, to commit ourselves to being more holy, to utilizing our giftedness for the glory of God, if that's true and we get that, then why do we do that with fear and trembling? For some of us, even here this morning, that seems counterintuitive. It seems counterintuitive because when we think of our status as sons and daughters of God, we say, why do I fear a God who calls me his child? That's not the way this is supposed to work. The veil has been rent, right? I'm a child of God. I can approach the throne with boldness, as we see in Hebrews, right? Well, yes, right. That is true. That is true. So what does this mean? In thinking about the best way to express this, I don't like to use a lot of personal anecdotes, but I'll use one. 
As a pastor, I have confidence to a degree when I come up here, when I step in the pulpit. And part of that's because I know that God's love for me is not going to change no matter whether a sermon is great or whether it bombs. I know that God loves me. I have a certain degree of confidence that my salvation doesn't hinge on how well I do in any given sermon or encounter or day or week or year. I know nothing's going to change my status as a beloved child of God. And so, yeah, I have confidence. And I hope you do too. But at the same time, as a pastor, as one who opens the Word publicly, I also do this with fear and trembling because I know that which I do. You would not want a glib, cavalier individual to come up and preach the Word of God in a glib, cavalier way. Whether it's me or 50 years from now, someone else. You don't want someone to approach the things of God, the church of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God in a way that does not show awe and reverence for the one we're worshiping. I don't fear God's punitive fist. I don't. Absolutely not. And yet, I tremble before His holy character. I do what I do with some reverence because I know something about the holiness in front of whom I'm doing it and for who I'm doing it. I trust this is the same for all of us. We don't fear the punitive fist of God smacking us. No, absolutely not. And yet, because I know something about His holiness and His radiance, yes, I tremble before His nature. Yes, I feel completely insignificant before Him. I can do nothing apart from what He does in me and through me. Absolutely, and the same is true of all of us. You can't do anything apart from His grace. With salvation, sanctification, what have you. And yet, he does enfold your efforts to be sanctified and your efforts to glorify him into his decree. Take that seriously. Take that seriously. That's what it means to work out your salvation, to work outward that which he has sown within in a spirit and attitude of fear and trembling. So let's look at verses 14 through 16. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. You know, this week, as Roddy mentioned earlier, our denomination is going to hold our General Assembly in St. Louis. I invite you, I'd even encourage you to tune in to the happenings. Thursday is the big day, but I encourage you to see what's going on in our denomination. With that said, we're going to have a General Assembly in St. Louis later this week, and it's a time when all the pastors and a cross-section of ruling elders from the PCA come together as one. Pray for myself, pray for Doug Lipscomb and Jordan Carl, who will be joining me on this trip. Now, with that said, over the years, I've been to a number of these assemblies. You know, there's something interesting. When you go to General Assembly, there's certain phrases that you hear uh, repeated, especially on the floor, especially when people are voicing their views, whatever those views may be. Now, one of the phrases that you'll hear, and it'll be shared by people on every side of the spectrum, they'll talk about the importance of what is being debated, they'll talk about the trajectory and the outcome of that debate, and then, whether they're on the left, right, or what have you, they'll often say this. They'll say, the world is watching. What we do here, the world is watching. There's a recognition, especially at the General Assembly level, which only meets once a year, that the things that are said and discussed and decided upon send a message to those in the greater world. In a sense, Paul's reminding the Philippians of this same truth that the world is watching in verses 14 and 15. He says, do what you do. Do all these things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless, harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of this perverse and crooked generation among whom you shine as lights 
and the world. He was saying the world is watching. It's watching the PCA. It was watching the Philippians. It's watching the SBC. It's watching God's people, wherever they gather, in whatever context they gather. Yes, the world is watching. And they're watching two things. They're watching what we do. They're watching what we do and what we decide. They're also watching the way we do it. They're watching the way we go about our business. And Paul's letters here and elsewhere, of course there's a mandate to stand for truth. Of course there's a mandate to uphold the gospel, to do what's right, to do what's biblical and scriptural, to do what lines up with God's decree and with His Word. Absolutely. With that said, not only is there an emphasis on standing for truth, but there's an emphasis, if you look at these verses and other verses in Paul's letters, there's an emphasis not only on what we do and what we say and what we decide, but how we do that. How we engage with one another. The spirit of love and peace that we demonstrate whether it's locally or whether it's at a general assembly level. The world sees the outcome, the decisions that are made, but they also see the attitude in which those decisions are conveyed, the way the discussion is shaped. The Philippians were called to focus on both what they did, but also the way they went about it, because the world would see both. In Philippi, things were not going to get better if the Christians hid. If the Christians had taken their foot off the gas, so to speak, if they were bearing their light just a bit, or at least obscuring it a bit from the world, Paul says, hey, no, no, no. Don't do that. Don't be afraid to speak truth in a darkened world. In fact, he says, you need to shine that light. Dear heavens, the only way that a darkened world is going to be changed is if a light is shined upon it. We have that light. So he says, by all means, through every strength, gift, talent that any of you have been given, shine it. Shine this light so that the world will be transformed through its rays in whatever setting we've been placed. Absolutely shine it. And this admonition still applies today. Shining the light is not optional. It's not like we can just say, well, maybe not this week. Maybe not this month or this year, given everything that's going on. No, it's not optional. If we want to change the darkness in the world around us, then the answer is not going to be found in quieting things down. It's not going to be found in appeasing the outer world or accommodating their views. No. The answers to the problems in a dark and depraved age is to shine the light of the gospel. The world will never become more godly apart from being instructed in God's word. And that requires us to speak, to do what's right, to stand on truth. And it takes intentionality to do that. It takes intentionality even in times when it's dangerous. And Paul was reminding the Philippians, yeah, it might be dangerous, but you don't get an out here. You're supposed to do this. With that said, do not miss the fact in verses 14 through 16 that this is to be done in the most gentle and graceful way possible. And man alive, we miss that sometimes. So he says, do all these things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless. He says, do these things, but watch your attitude. Do these things. You'll be children of God without fault in the midst of the crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's a gentleness of character and grace that we're called to have. It doesn't mean for a moment you shy away from what you say, but you have to learn to say it with some grace and some temperance and with an actual love and respect for the people you're saying it to. You miss that, you miss the boat. Okay, let's look at verses 17 and 18 now. Verse 17, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Back in verse 16, 
Paul told the Philippians to hold fast to the word of life, so that he could rejoice, knowing that he had not labored with them in vain. See, Paul's thinking back, and he goes, you know, I know the time I spent with y'all, and I know the things I said, and I know how we cried together, and wept together, and talked together, and all these things. I know the investment I have in you. Please, for the love of God, don't let it be in vain. Let it be that if I have been poured out like a drink offering, that it be for your benefit, for your benefit, the service of your faith. And if that's true, then I'm glad and I rejoice, no matter what outcome. Paul was okay with whatever outcome God brought his circumstances to. Ultimately, they'd bring him to death. Ultimately, Paul would die as a martyr. But you know, the thing was, he was okay with that outcome. What he was scared of is that his labors would be wasted by those that he labored with and to. Paul's anxiety was not about death. It wasn't about Caesar and Rome and house arrest and the like. If he had a fear and concern, it was that the people in Philippi might do some of the things the people in Galatia did and just adopt a different gospel, pervert their faith in the midst of a pervert generation. His desire was, oh dear God, as you work your work in the hearts of the church of Philippi, oh God, please let them hold on to the faith as they have been taught. He was okay with giving up his life to that outcome. He was okay with being poured out like a drink offering. That was cool with Paul. But he didn't want it to be wasted either amongst those that he poured it out for. You know, I said I'd never do personal anecdotes. I'll do two in one sermon. As a pastor and as a parent. As a pastor and as a parent. I could die a happy man right now. I don't want it to happen. (laughs) But I could die a happy man right now if I knew that my beloved congregation, my children, would apply 50% of the imperatives and instruction that I've labored to teach. God is my witness. I could die a happy man if I knew that to be true. Content. If you're a school teacher, don't you want your kids to learn something from your efforts? Don't you want them to come away somewhat better in life and in skill sets as a result of your teaching? If you're a parent, don't you want that for your kids? Don't you want your children to come away as a result of your teaching and your love and everything you've given them better off for having been given it? Well, in a sense, Paul's saying the same thing in verses 17 and 18. He says, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, a sacrifice for your faith, then I'm glad and I rejoice. Okay, let's look at our final verses, 19 through 30. Verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one as like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For everyone else, they seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his character. He's talking about Timothy. You know him. There's a son with his father. He served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come to you shortly. And yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my needs, since he was longing for you all, he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, not only to him, but also to me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him all the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. In this chunk of text here that wraps up chapter 2, Paul is elevating two guys in the eyes of the Philippians. Two guys that they know. He's saying, 
I'm going to send you Timothy and Epaphroditus. When they get there, listen to these ones and then watch the way that they live their lives. They don't live their lives as passive believers. This is one of the challenges in our day. There's a lot of craziness going on in the world around us, and many of us, we don't know how to react, so we react as a deer in the headlights. We become passive. In Philippi, they had become kind of passive, and he says, I'm going to send you two men of action, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These are two men who know something about working outward that which God has worked within. He refers to Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he says, these are examples. Listen to them and follow their path of life. Now, Timothy was like-minded with Paul. Timothy was like-minded. He had sincerely loved God's people, and he sought the things of Christ. As for Epaphroditus, this was someone that the Philippians knew very well because he was one of their own. You see, Timothy came from Lystra. He came from somewhere else. But Epaphroditus, the Philippians knew this guy because he was from Philippi. He was one of theirs. Epaphroditus was a Philippian. Now, Epaphroditus, as we said earlier, he was the one that the church in Philippi had sent to bring gifts to Paul and to help support him in his house arrest. And Epaphroditus did this at great risk to himself personally, but it also, as we see in the text, it apparently it affected his health. He was so consumed with working outward his inward hope that he almost died doing it, and he was willing to. This man had labored on behalf of the Philippians and on behalf of Paul until he grew deathly ill. And even after, this is cool about Epaphroditus, even after he grew deathly ill, even after he's sitting there on his deathbed, so to speak, he didn't think about himself in this hour. Rather, we see in this text that Epaphroditus' great worry was that his beloved friends and neighbors in Philippi and the church there would be distressed when they heard what was going on with him. He wasn't even worried about himself. He was worried about the church in Philippi. I like this guy. I like this Epaphroditus. As we close this morning, let me share one last detail about this man. You may or may not realize it as you look at his name, Epaphroditus, but this is an exceptionally pagan name. Epaphroditus is exceptionally pagan. Have you ever heard of the Greek goddess Aphrodite? I assume you have. Well, this man's name is a derivative of hers. It's even been translated as meaning belonging to Aphrodite. Epaphroditus belonging to Aphrodite. Well, that may have been true at one time. He may have been a pagan idolater. In fact, there's every reason to believe he was at one point. But no longer. This man did not belong to Aphrodite or any other idol. He belonged to Christ Jesus, and he acted accordingly. This man really functioned no different from you and I. A small character in the biblical narrative a small character, really, even in the scope of all of Paul's ministries. Just a simple man who wanted to do what God had called him to do. Who wanted to work out that which God had worked within. At one point, this had not been his inclination. He had been an idolater. But now he belonged to Jesus and he acted as such. Epaphroditus was intent on working out his inward hope. Are we? Paul was taking Timothy and Epaphroditus and he was saying, these are good examples. His tongue of church in Philippi, these are simple men who God has made ambassadors for his kingdom the same way he's made you and I ambassadors. These are simple men, but here's the thing. They were sold out to their ministry, fully committed to working in that. This morning, what greater prayer can we have than this? That we might have that same spirit. That we might have this same desire to work out what God has put within us, individually and corporately. 
that we might be not content to, to keep our faith in the four walls of the church, but to deliberately, intentionally reach out into the world and community around us, no matter what the world's doing, no matter whether the world's with us or against us, that we might, individually and corporally, work out the salvation that God has worked within us. And that we would do so in such a gracious way is that we would point with clarity to a gracious to a gracious Savior. This morning, let's pray for the grace to do that as we close. Let's pray for the grace to do the same thing as we see in, in Paul or Timothy or Epaphroditus. Let's pray for the grace to, to continue to work at our salvation for the glory of our Savior. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.